Thank you so much, ladies. What a powerful song. Very comforting words, huh? What a blessing that the Lord just continues to send us people with musical gifts and talents that can minister to us like that. And it's just fun to see how the Lord just continues to add to our music team. And so we're very, 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 very grateful. Well, a week from today, I, Lord willing, will be standing behind a pulpit in Uganda. And uh, Shannon Hurley has invited me to come and, and uh, speak at his first uh, conference of the year, 2014. And uh, as you know, uh, Sufficiency of Scripture Ministries that we support as a church, prayerfully and financially, we actually fund one of uh, six, I think they are six conferences that he does uh, throughout uh, the, the, the country of Uganda every year. He divides up the country into regions and uh, this first conference is the Northeast region uh, of Uganda. And so he invited me to come and to speak with him on the subject of the invaluable church. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to uh, just spending the week with Shannon and spending the week with several hundred Ugandan pastors, uh, mostly from Baptist churches, and uh, just talking about what does the Bible teach about ecclesiology? You know, what is our doctrine of the church? And uh, I'm especially looking forward to actually preaching in Shannon's church. That was the, the church that we uh, took money from our building fund while we were uh, continuing to get our building uh, finished. We thought it would really honor the Lord and would honor our brothers and sisters over in Uganda to give some of that money to help them finish their building. And so they're in. And uh, they're worshiping there in their church building. So I'm looking forward to being there next Sunday, Lord willing, um, and seeing uh, what the Lord has done there and just sharing... Um, uh, fellowship with that, uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ over in Uganda. So all that to say, I, I really, really covet your prayers um, uh, as I leave uh, Thursday afternoon and we'll be gone for about a week till next Friday. Um, I really appreciate your prayers and would appreciate uh, just prayer, prayers for good health um, as I travel and minister and just for power as I preach God's word and, and just for sensitivity to that culture and that, that I would connect well with them, and, and uh, obviously whenever I speak through a translator, it, it just kind of throws me off, and so I just pray practically that, that uh, God would just uh, just handle that whole thing of, of preaching through a translator, and I know He will, He always has in the past, and so appreciate you praying for my family as well as I'm gone, that the Lord would just watch over them, I would give Kelly wisdom and discernment as she's uh, kind of holding down the fort, and uh, so we really, really appreciate that, but uh, this morning, as I've been gearing up, it kind of snuck up on me, this trip to Uganda. I said, whoa, I'm, I'm like leaving like in uh, a week and had to start thinking about what I was going to be talking about in Uganda this, on this subject of the church. And so there was a, a myriad of passages uh, that were, and verses that were going around, swirling around in my head. And one of those passages uh, that uh, whenever I think about the church my mind immediately goes to, and that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn there with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I want us just to look this morning at the marks of a model ministry or the marks of a model church. And we have here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, really um, Paul expressing his gratitude to God for this church that was planted in Thessalonica. And let's listen to what he says here to them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. 
Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in, the, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his son son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Father, we thank you for uh, your word and just how um, helpful it is to us as individuals and as a church. And Lord, as we just take a few moments this morning to uh, look at this model church, the the church in Thessalonica, I pray that you would uh, open up our eyes to understand what Paul was saying here and why he was so thankful. And I pray that the things that were true of this church would be true of our church. For your glory we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, according to Webster's Dictionary, a model is, quote, a person or thing considered as a standard of excellence to be imitated. A model is a person or thing considered as a standard of excellence to be imitated. And so in golf, Jack Nicklaus is a model. In basketball, Michael Jordan is a model. In baseball, Babe Ruth is a model. In football, Peyton Manning is a model. In soccer, uh, David Beckham is a model. In tennis, Roger Federer is a model. In car racing, Dale Earnhardt is a model. In business, Bill Gates is a model. In home economics, Martha Stewart is a model in some ways. Um, (laughs) In the music industry... Frank Sinatra is a model. In the, in the movie industry, Steven Spielberg is a model. In the art world, Thomas Kincaid is a model. And so when it comes to the church, who is the model? Who or what is to be considered as the standard of excellence to be imitated? Well, we know that there are a number of popular churches in our country today that have achieved phenomenal growth and success and have become kind of the model churches for others to follow. And thousands of pastors and and church leaders regularly flock to these churches' annual conferences and, and then they return home and try to imitate these churches and pattern their churches after those churches. And so oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, our church is modeled after a church in Chicago or our church is modeled after a church in California or we're a seeker driven church or we're a purpose driven church. But I would submit to you this morning that if we want to find a church to pattern ourselves after, 
We need to look no further than the scriptures because here we find a model church worthy of imitation. And of all the churches that God used the Apostle Paul to plant and shepherd, he only referred to one as a model church, and it was this one right here, the church in Thessalonica. Now, we don't have time to look at this, but if you uh, were to go back to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, we you would see where Paul visited the city of Thessalonica during his second missionary journey. And as was his custom, he went to, uh, to, to the synagogue and began teaching the people about Christ. And it wasn't long before some rebel rousers formed a mob and ran him out of town. And yet even though he'd only been there just a, a few weeks, probably three weeks at the most, a, 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 a quite a large number of people had gotten saved and a church had been established. And so naturally, having been prematurely ripped away from these baby believers, Paul was deeply concerned for this church. And he longed to return and to teach them some things and, um, and, and to fill up what was lacking in their faith, 1 Thessalonians 3.10. And yet Satan hindered him from going back. And so he ended up sending Timothy um, to find out how things were going. And he came back with this glowing report. And not only were they doing well, but this young church had become a model for the rest of the churches all over Macedonia and Achaia. And so needless to say, Paul was ecstatic and uh, not to mention relieved, and his heart was just filled with thanksgiving to God. And so he sat down and wrote a letter to the Thessalonian church, and he begins this letter by expressing his gratitude to God for them. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. And he went on to list the specific reasons why he was so thankful for them. And as we're going to see, that he didn't mention things like the number of members. I was, I'm so excited. I mean, I heard you're busting at the seams. That's not what he says. Or, wow, I heard you already got some property and you already got a building and, you're, man, you're just building and it's just that's, that's exciting. Or, or, man, I heard about all the creative programs that, that you guys have started. Or, or, or I heard that you're, you're, you know, I heard about your annual meeting and, wow, it went really well. And that wasn't any of what Paul was thankful for. What he described here in the remainder of chapter 1 are the spiritual qualities or characteristics that made them a model church. And so I want to look with you this morning at these, at these marks of a model church. And there's four of them, four marks of a model church. Every church should be marked by, the, be, by these same four things. And it's my prayer that God would cause our church to be marked by these four things. You say, what are they? Number one, the first mark of a model ministry or a model church is that they are elect, that they're elect, that they evidentially are experiencing salvation in Christ. They're evidentially experiencing salvation in Christ. Notice what Paul says here in verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. And really, verse 3 is kind of a parenthetical statement. And he really, you could jump from verse 2 right to verse 4. I, I give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And so the main reason why Paul was grateful for the church in Thessalonica because he was convinced that they were truly saved. 
And in God's great wisdom and love and, and, and grace and, and mercy, God had sovereignly chosen them to be saved. And that's what's wrapped up in that phrase, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. And here we have the doctrine of election once again, and this is very typical of Paul's letters that he wrote to the churches, that somewhere in the opening line he included the doctrine of election. For example, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Peter, writing to the believers who were scattered throughout Asia, experiencing persecution, he wrote this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, He said, those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Even in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he said this in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And so the premier mark of a healthy, growing, God-honoring church is that it's made up of people who have been generally saved by the sovereign grace of God, which is evidenced by the transforming, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Beloved, this is the most important ingredient to a dynamic, effective church, is that the church is filled with people who are truly saved. Just a a year and a half, two years ago, maybe... I had the privilege of receiving a phone call from a a, a gentleman who attends another church in our community, and he was heading up the search committee, and uh, they were looking for a new pastor, and and, uh, they they also kind of felt they needed to go in a different direction, that things just weren't going well for the church. And so they had been visiting around and looking at the different churches in the area, and they had come by and visited our church, unbeknownst to me, and and they said, listen, at the end of the day, we, we feel like of all the churches in the community, it just seems like God's blessing is on Lakeside. And 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 would you would you give us would you tell us your secret? And uh, I was like, listen, I, I, I'm so humbled and honored that you would call me and that you would say that. And I said, listen, we can't take any credit for what the Lord is doing up here, but I would tell you uh, the most important issue when it comes to a church is that you have a regenerate membership that you have a a group of people that are genuinely saved. And I think there's a lot of churches today filled with what what we've called unsaved believers, right? People that believe all the right stuff, but they're not truly saved. They they think they're saved, they act like they're saved, they, they talk like they're saved, but they're not truly saved. And we know that that's the case because Jesus talked about not everyone who who calls, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? There's going to be a whole lot of people surprised at the end that they thought they were on their way to heaven and they don't, and they don't end up there. And you've got the parables that Jesus told, the parable of the wheat and tares, for example, that while, while God is sowing wheat, right, and, and causing people to come to Christ and, and grow in Christ, you've got Satan coming in behind and sowing tares, sowing weeds, kind of to mess up everything. 
And you've got that going on. You've got that dynamic going on in every church around the world. You've got wheat and you've got weeds side by side. And so we need to guard against Satan's attempts to, to produce an unregenerate membership here at Lakeside Bible Church. And, 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 and again, please understand my heart here. It's not that we don't want unbelievers to come to Lakeside Bible Church. We want unbelievers to come here. Amen? We just don't want them to join until they get saved, right? That's the whole point. And so we, we have strategically put up some, some barriers or some roadblocks or, or, or maybe some, some strainers, if you will, uh, in our membership process to weed out uh, unbelievers as best we can. We, we require that people write out their personal testimony and that they, they share with us how they came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And we're looking very specifically, if they understand the gospel, as they share that, we ask them very specific questions and just give them an opportunity to, to articulate the gospel. We want to make sure they understand the gospel. How can you be saved, right, if you can't articulate the gospel? And then we have a membership interview. We, 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 we meet with um, them, a couple of the elders. We'll meet with everybody who, who goes through the membership class. Why? So we can talk with them and dialogue, get to know them personally, and again, have them share their testimony with us so we can be confident that they know Christ. You say, why, why are you... Why do you do that? Because nothing could hinder this church's effectiveness more than having a bunch of unsaved people in it. You know that because some of you came from churches like that. And it was just frustrating, right? Because people didn't truly know Christ and and this was not the final authority for what happened in that church, right? Right? And so some of you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, you, what makes you think you can tell whether or not a person is saved? That sounds pretty judgmental, right? Who, who made you the judge of other people's salvation, right? Well, listen, I'll be the first one to admit that only God knows a person's heart. And I think that we will all be surprised to see certain people in heaven that we weren't expecting to see there. And I think we're also going to be shocked when we are looking around to find someone and they're not there that we thought were going to be there. But having said that, what Paul said here is amazing. He said that he knew that the Thessalonians were truly saved. You say, how does he know? Look, he says, he says knowing, verse 4, which implies a type of knowledge that didn't just come by revelation or intuition, but this was by observation. In other words, this, this was plain for the eye to see. This was obvious to me. And what Paul saw was certain evidences and certain fruits in the lives of these people that convinced them that they had been truly saved. And he begins by describing three objective evidences of salvation, three marks of a true Christian in verse 3. Notice he says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. Number two, your labor of love. And number three, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. These are three objective evidences of true salvation. First of all, your work, your works that were produced by faith. He says, listen, I saw, I saw your good works that were produced by faith. It was a work of faith. In other words, their faith was evidenced by good works that it produced in their lives. Again, good works don't save us, but they prove that we're saved. On the other hand, faith without works is what? Dead, right? 
The Reformers said it best, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Love that phrase. So he says, I saw your work of faith. I saw your labor of love, that there was this labor. Your, your service to the Lord was, was motivated by love. The intense devotion that you had for Christ motivated you to live a life of sacrificial service to God and others. It's like what the hymn writer said. He said, quote, I would not work my soul to say, for that my Lord is done, but I would work like any slave for love to God's dear son. Now, I'm not working to earn my salvation. I'm working because I'm saved, and I'm working out of love. And this is a, a joy for me to serve the Lord. And so there's a labor of love. And then thirdly, there's a steadfastness of hope. In other words, that you demonstrated endurance that was inspired by hope. In other words, the, the hope that they had in their, in their future relief and reward in heaven enabled them to patiently and willingly endure the trials and persecutions of life. Verse 6 talks about how they received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, as soon as these people got saved, man, it came down on them. They, they were immediately persecuted, immediately put under trial in this hostile environment of Thessalonica. And so Paul is basically saying, listen, because God produced these fruits in your life, as he does in the life of every true Christian, I know you're saved. But that's not the only reason why Paul was convinced of their salvation. He had also observed some other things in his own life and ministry that were more subjective evidences of salvation. It was just more something that maybe he sensed as he was ministering. Notice he says in verse 5, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for why am I so convinced you're saved? Why am I so convinced God's chosen you for salvation? For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in what? Power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so what Paul's saying there is that when he... When he ministered in Thessalonica for those three weeks, he, he experienced an unusual sense of the Spirit's power when he preached to them. And I would just say as a preacher, that, that happens from time to time. I wish I could bottle it and, 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 and like harness it at any moment I would want to. But it just sometimes you're just you know preaching along and you get done and you're like, well, that was sort of okay, I guess. I mean, it's just... Whatever, I hope I was faithful to the text. But you didn't sense any like real power. But then there's other times, it's like the Spirit of God just takes over. And you're like, whoa, what was that? And it's like you're having some out-of-body experience. And you're like up here watching yourself preach. And you're like, whoa. And you know it's the Spirit of God. And he's doing something very powerful. And it's not about you. It's about something that God's wanting to do in the midst of that people that you're speaking to. And so Paul's saying, I, that's kind of what it was like when I was there, and, and, and that gives me the confidence that your profession of faith in Christ was not based on my intelligence or my eloquence, but it was based on the power of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said, hey, I, I, I forsook my eloquence and my intelligence, and I knew nothing but Christ and him crucified, right? I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. Why? Because I wanted to make sure that your faith didn't rest on my wisdom, my ability to communicate, but it was clearly based on the power of God. First Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says this, for this reason we also constantly thank God. So he's still thanking God 
into chapter 2 here. And why is he thankful? That when you received the word which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. In other words, you were sitting there on the edge of your seats, not listening to me. You knew it wasn't just me. You were listening to the very words of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. In other words, the Thessalonian believers had experienced the transforming work of the Word in their lives. And in a relatively short period of time, their their lives have been dramatically changed. I mean, talk about a a total turnaround. It says in verse 9 that they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That's radical conversion right there. And so the point is simply this, that those whom God chooses, He changes. Did you get that? Those whom God chooses, He changes. And that's why I can't figure out why there are people in the church who continue to insist that a person who gets saved may never see any change in their life, or that that change may not happen for a long time. In other words, you can make some profession of faith, and then years can go by until like you really start living for the Lord. Well, maybe it, you made a profession of faith, and you truly weren't regenerate until, like, boom, you actually started living for the Lord. You actually changed. You actually repented. That's probably when you got saved. That's probably when you got born again. Now, granted, sanctification is a process, right? Some grow quicker than others. Not everyone produces the same amount of fruit. It's not as obvious in everyone's life as it is in other people's lives. But the basic biblical pattern is that when a person becomes a Christian, their life begins to change. We just sang about it, right? The old is gone the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Genuine salvation will not and cannot fail to transform a person's life. So let me ask you, since you became a Christian, since you made a profession of faith in Christ, since you committed your life to Christ, have you seen any of the changes in your life like the ones Paul saw in the Christians in Thessalonica? Does this, any of this look familiar to you, sound familiar to you, feel familiar to you in your own experience? If not, then you need to examine your life to see if you're really a Christian. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, interesting wording. Peter says here, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. That's an interesting one to think about for a little while. Don't think about it too long because your head will explode, right? But he's basically saying, be diligent to make certain that you're one of God's elect. You're like, whoa, whoa, time out. I didn't think we could know whether or not we're one of God's elect, right? Yeah, exactly, all right? The point is, examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith, according to 2 Corinthians 13, 5. You know, not long, not long after we, we, we started Lakeside, someone made the comment to me that they said, if, if you're not a real Christian, you're not going to last long at Lakeside. And I kind of chuckled when they said it, because it was kind of like, a, they kind of meant it in maybe a sarcastic way, but I thought, you know, that, uh, hopefully that's true. I mean, unbelievers shouldn't be able to sit comfortably in a church Sunday after Sunday without ever being challenged to examine their lives. And so really, 
this is the beginning of this model church for us, that, that they set this model uh, for us that our church should follow, that we should be a church filled with people who are truly saved, and everybody knows it because our lives have, have clearly been transformed and are being transformed by the power of God's Spirit through the preaching of God's Word. And so they were elect, number one, first mark of a model church, they were elect. Number two, they were exemplary. They were exemplary. They were effectively modeling Christ to others. Notice the end of verse five. Paul says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In other words, you remember how we lived our lives before you, the, the, the model that we gave you, the example we set for you. Verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul says, listen, you guys watched how we lived. You became imitators of us. You modeled your life after us and after the Lord specifically in that you joyfully endured persecution for the cause of Christ, just like I did, just like the Lord did. And we know that throughout his letters, Paul regularly exhorted people to follow him as he followed who? Christ, right? Follow me as I follow Christ. In fact, in in the second letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians, he, he emphasized the importance of his example In verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. We didn't eat anyone else's bread without paying for it, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. So he says, you you followed our example, but then notice verse 7, so that... You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Talk about, right, they, they, they were following someone else's example to the point that they eventually became an example on their own, an example to others. This word example here is a word that was used to describe a seal that was, would mark wax. It would make an imprint in, in the wax on a letter. It was a, a stamp that would mint a coin. In other words, it's a pattern to follow. Same idea here. And so the the Thessalonians became the model Christians that that all the other Christians in Greece were were patterning their lives after. They had left their mark on others, or or you could say they had left a lasting impression on those around them. How did that happen? How did they become that example? Well, it's because they had an example to begin with. Here we have very clearly the principle of discipleship. The principle of discipleship, which is simply the process of spending time with a more mature Christian to learn from them what they know about Christ and walking with Christ so that you can go teach someone maybe who doesn't know as much as you about Christ or hasn't walked with Christ as long as you and you can share with them what you've been taught. I mean, this is just a basic principle of the Christian life. Matthew 28, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So 
someone taught you things, right? You have a responsibility to go teach others those things that were taught to you. For men, us men, 2 Timothy 2.2 is probably the best verse about discipleship in the New Testament. Paul said uh, to Timothy, he said, the things you've learned from me and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And the idea is they're of a relay race, right? Timothy, I pass the baton to you. You pass that baton to the next guy and make sure you put it in the hands of a guy who can, can adequately pass it on to the guy after him. For you ladies, sec, uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5, talk about the older women should live a godly life so that they can teach the younger women how to live the same way. And so really, discipleship, it's really simple. You know, it just, it's two people getting together and helping each other become more like Christ. And that's all discipleship is. It's just a spiritual friendship where you encourage and challenge and, and motivate and stimulate one another to be more like Christ. I appreciate what John MacArthur said in his book, The Marks of a Healthy Church. He said very simply, quote, a Christian who isn't discipling someone is a contradiction. If you're a Christian and you're not discipling someone, then you're a contradiction. He says he ought to be reproducing his life and the lives of others. And so that's what was going on, that Paul had reproduced his life into the believers in Thessalonica, and they had gone on to reproduce their lives into the lives of others. And the fact that they opened up their lives... And allowed him to pour his life into theirs, that investment in their lives eventually developed them into worthy examples for others to imitate as well. So again, this is a model for us as a church. Everyone here at this church needs to be involved in the discipleship process, in the reproduction process. And so I ask you, are you involved in a discipleship relationship? Who are you trying to imitate? Are you regularly spending time with someone who is helping you grow in your relationship with Christ? How about this? Is your life worthy of imitation? Can you serve as a model of what a Christian is to be and do so that others can pattern their lives after you? Can you honestly say, follow me as I follow Christ? Who are you pouring your life into? Whose life are you impacting? Who are you leaving a spiritual impression on? Guys, where are your faithful men? Show, me, show them to me. Who, who are they, guys? Every one of you should be able to say, you know what, I'm really targeting that guy, and I'm trying to spend some time with that guy, and I have a heart for that guy. And, 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 and ladies, where are your ladies? Where are your younger women? Point them out to me. Show me who they are. You should be able to pick at least one. Every one of you ladies should have at least one other woman that you're saying, you know what, that's the lady I look to, kind of she mentors me, and that's the gal that I'm kind of mentoring. Everyone should have a Paul, and everyone should have a Timothy, Right? So maybe that's a good place to start. Just two people. Just, just make it two people. Someone who mentors you and someone that you mentor. That's what it means to be a part of the discipleship process. And so that's what made them exemplary. Not only were they exemplary and elect, they were also evangelistic. They were evangelistic. In other words, uh, their, their focus was not just inward on let's just disciple one another. Let's just all huddle together and have Bible study and talk and pray together. But they had also a vision for...
for the world. And they were enthusiastically impacting the world for Christ. Notice verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what a kind of reception we had with you. That phrase, sounded forth, the word of the Lord sounded forth, is the word from where we get our English word echo. And so like, a, like a, a clap of thunder or a trumpet blast that resounds and reverberates and resonates all over the place, the word of God was powerfully resonating from this church to the entire surrounding area. Now this church was in a, a very strategic location geographically for reaching a lot of people. It was the capital city of Macedonia. It was a prominent seaport that was situated on a main road between um, Rome and the east. So this gave them an unprecedented opportunity to have local and national and, and really international outreach. But the real reason why they had such a worldwide impact was not their location, it was their passion. And it was everyone's passion in the church to penetrate the world around them with a life-changing message of God's word. And so they were all enthusiastically involved in telling others about Christ, and, and it made a dynamic impact, not just in their own city, but all over the place. In fact, their testimony spread so quickly that even Paul couldn't keep up with it, and that guy was getting after it. He was out there getting it done, and, 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 and he'd go to a city, no matter where he went, he wouldn't have to tell anybody about the church in Thessalonica because everyone was already telling him about it. They, they kind of were the talk of the town. And again, this is a model for us as a church, that everyone here should, be, should have that same excitement and enthusiasm about sharing the truth of God's word with other people, no matter uh, where you are or who you talk to in this area, I would hope that eventually people would say, well, wait a minute, I, wait a minute. I heard, I've heard of your church, Lakeside I've heard of your, I've heard about the things that God's doing over there. And that, that our reputation precedes us, if you will, right? Because we're so passionate about the truth that, that we're sharing the truth all over the place. And, it, and it's almost like we become the talk of the town uh, to the Lord's glory, not for the church's glory. And as we're faithful in preaching the gospel to Jerusalem, right, to this area, God will provide us with greater opportunities to reach out around this country and around the world. And so the question is, are you enthusiastic about reaching this community with the gospel? Are you excited about that? Does that pump you up? Is the word of God echoing forth from your life? When you come down the hall at work, do all the people that are, you know, up, popped up like little gophers out of their cubicle, all of a sudden they go back in the hole because they go, oh, here he comes. I'm going to get the word. I'm going to get something. He's going he's to talk about Jesus with me, or Right? Are you faithfully sharing the gospel with your family, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates? That's, that's the example, the, the, the model that the Thessalonian church has set for us. See, the key to a healthy, growing church is people who have a passion 
for reaching the lost with the gospel. We can never, ever forget this is why we exist. This is the, this is the ultimate mission of our church. Our mission statement says this, that we exist to glorify God by proclaiming and living His Word so that people come to know Christ and grow to be like Christ. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. That's our mission statement. And so everything we do is to further that great end. We, we must never lose sight of the goal. We must never be content to just sit around within the four walls of this church and check it off and go, okay, we're, I'm, being a, I'm being a good Christian. We're a good church. No. This is a means to an end. This is a training center. This is an equipping center. This is like, this is like coming to practice and getting ready for the game. This is like coming into the locker room and getting the pep talk, right? Let's go out there and get them. Ah, we all go out there, right? That's what this is for. I mean, what a, what a, I mean come on, there's, there's some football going on this afternoon, is there not? And you're like, yeah, you better hurry up because the team's getting ready to go. Um, there's some football going on. How ridiculous would it be if one of those coaches today of one of these final four teams gets the guys all riled up in the locker room and they just hung around the locker room for the next four hours talking about football, going over the playbook, analyzing this. They missed the whole point, right? We've done all this preparation, all this training, all this getting us fired up to go out there and do what this is all for, and that's to play this game. Well, that's what I'm talking about, getting out of here and going and sharing the gospel. That's why we do this. We gather to be edified, and we scatter to evangelize. And so they were evangelistic. Great example for us. And then lastly, they were expectant. They were expectant. They were eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. Notice again verse 9, that the words out, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, you need to understand, most of the Christians in the church in Thessalonica were Gentiles who had been saved out of idolatry. In fact, the city of Thessalonica is just 50 miles south of Mount Olympus, the home of the Greek gods and goddesses. And so most of these people literally grew up in the shadow of Greek mythology, And so what he's saying here is that you turned away from these idols to serve a living and true God. And they became willing slaves of the one true God. Talk about, verse 9 is a great example of true conversion, true repentance, right? A turning away, right? A turning away from what you used to worship and a turning to Christ. A turning to the one true and living God. And so their lives became consumed with serving Christ. And the whole time they were serving him, they were eagerly awaiting his return to rescue them from God's wrath. They knew that God's wrath was coming. His anger would be poured out upon the sin and rebellion of mankind. Paul had, I'm sure, told them about God's wrath. And he also told them about the rapture. We know that because he repeats it a little bit here. He talks a little bit out in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But the rapture is simply God's evacuation plan 
how he's going to remove his people out of enemy territory before he unleashes his wrath upon the earth during the tribulation. And, and I'm sure that when Paul shared the gospel with the Thessalonians, he, 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 he taught them that after Jesus rose from the dead and before he had ascended back to heaven, that he had promised to return to, to get his followers. And so the return of Christ is, is a recurring theme in these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians. You know that, right? That these two letters have more to say about the second coming of Christ than any other book in the New Testament except for the book of Revelation. All that to say that it, it shows that the Thessalonian church was consumed with Christ's return. They were confused. <laughs> and that's why he had to correct them on some stuff, but they were consumed by it. And so they had a conviction that Jesus could come back at any moment. His return was imminent. And it had a dramatic influence on the way they lived their lives. It provided them comfort. It provided them hope. It provided a sense of urgency that compelled them to reach out while there was still time for people to repent and believe the gospel. It motivated them to, to live a pure and holy life. And, and so this eager anticipation of Christ's return modeled by the Thessalonian church is an example for us to follow, that all of us should live with the same eager anticipation of the return of Christ. And, and if we do, it will cause us to be hopeful. It will cause us to be heavenly minded. It will motivate us to be holy. And so I ask you, are you eagerly awaiting for Christ to come back? I mean, do you really, when's the last time you thought, you know what, Jesus could come back today. He could come back this afternoon. Do you guys believe that? Not really, right? Just doesn't seem logical. It doesn't seem like, man, I got, well, but I got to watch football this afternoon. Jesus can't come back. Maybe after the game. So I'm going to Uganda. Maybe after Uganda. Jesus can come back. We, we make our plans. We, right, when I got to do that, I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to get this job. I want to buy this car. And we're like, you know what? I, yeah, maybe Jesus come back. But we don't live in the sense that he could go back today. And then ask ourselves, are we ready if he were to come back today? Would we rejoice in his return today? Or would we be ashamed to see him today? How about this? Have you lost hope in the midst of a difficult situation that you're in? Or is the reality that Christ could come back at any moment providing you with comfort and hope to sustain you in the midst of your pain and the suffering? Because guess what? It's not always going to be that way. Amen? It's not permanent. And so they were expectant. And so here are four marks of a model church, a model ministry. They were elect, they were exemplary, they were evangelistic, they were expectant. You see how all that works together? That you need to get saved. That's the first thing. Then you need to get discipled. You need to be discipled, and then hopefully you begin discipling others in the process. And then you realize, hey, I got, I got, the, I got saved. I, I, my life has been transformed, and I'm growing. And man, I want everyone else to know the good news. I want them to experience the transformation that I'm experiencing. And so I want to go out and witness. And, and the whole process, as we're witnessing, we're, we're looking to the, to the sky, knowing that Jesus could come back at any moment. And so these are not just four marks of a model church. These are four marks of a model Christian I mean, this is the way God wants us to live our lives as Christians, not just as a church. 
And if everyone in our church is marked by these four things, then our church will be marked by these four things. The church doesn't become this kind of church unless the people who go to that church are those kind of people. And so I would would encourage you that this is the kind of church God wants us to be. This is the kind of Christian God wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the church in Thessalonica. It's not a perfect church. There's no perfect church, no such thing. But it is a model church, and it was worthy of commendation. And Lord, there's so much we can learn from this church. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to... Um, make sure that we're saved, number one, that, Lord, we would also find someone who could disciple us and mentor us and, and, and pour their life into us and, and, and model for us how to live the Christian life and that you would provide us others that we could reach out to and, 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 and share the things that we're learning with others, maybe someone who's less knowledgeable or hasn't, hasn't been a believer as long and that we would be able to have the joy of discipling and, and modeling Christ for someone else. And then, Lord, give us a burden, give us a passion to tell the lost about Jesus, to share the gospel. Give us all opportunities this week Lord, to open up our mouths and, 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 and share the good news of salvation with someone who desperately needs to hear it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn how to live in light of your uh, imminent return, that you could come back at any moment, and that would just thrill our hearts to think about it. It wouldn't be something that scares us or that we would dread. It would be something that we look forward to more than anything else in our life. And we would never let our plans and our futures in some way diminish our expectation of your soon and coming return. So Lord, help us to be these people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.